Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity to open your word together, to spend these next few days together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would rain down upon us, that you would transform us into the image of your Son, that we would be changed, that we would go forth to be the light of the world that you've created us to be. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us just now, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Imagine that God told you he had the right spouse for you, the right husband or the right wife. He said, I have just the right person for you. Her name is Gomer. Now, I can imagine initially you find out you're going to get married, you're excited, but then you find out, and and the way that God states it immediately, if you have your Bibles, look with me in the book of Hosea. Hosea is the uh, passage in chapter 6 that we're really looking at this week. That's kind of the foundation of this weekend that we're going to, uh, we're going to be looking into this. But we're going to look right in Hosea chapter 1 and look at what God said to this man. He said to his prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to look in verse 2. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, the word of God reads, The beginning of the word of the Lord to Hosea, by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto you a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. For the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Imagine. Imagine that you are called to go marry someone who is going to commit adultery. They're going to turn their back on you. Someone who you're committing your life to. You are choosing to be faithful to. And God is telling you beforehand, they're not going to be faithful back. They may actually go and they may already have children from, you know, either prostitution or immoral living. And they may also have them in the future after you get married. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how difficult that would be? Now, the name Hosea in the Hebrew is very similar to the word for Yeshua. Hosea means the Redeemer, like a a Savior or a Deliverer. And Yeshua means the, you know, Jehovah saves. You know the name that, uh, where we get the name Jesus it is Jehovah saves. These, these names are very similar in the Hebrew. That this man, it seems that even the life of Hosea seemed to be a living illustration of the Savior who was to come. And so, sometimes I think people read the book of Hosea, they look at Hosea and they think, how could God do something like that? How could he ask this individual to go marry someone that would, would not be faithful, would run off, would give their life to other men? And commit adultery. How on earth could God do that? It almost makes us angry. Like that's crazy. What do you? What do you? What, what would he be thinking? Right. But I think many times it's because we don't really understand what sin is. We think that our sin is okay because, in actuality, we actually enjoy our sin, just like Hosea, his wife Gomer. She seemed to enjoy the lifestyle that she was living. 
Now, look what happens. So, so he marries this woman. She goes back into her illicit relationships. And if you're with me in, in Hosea chapter 3, in Hosea chapter 3, what ends up happening? Look with me in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the what? The love of the Lord. Toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver, and for an omer of barley, and for a half omer of barley. And as I understand as you add up, you know, the barley that was added to the, these shekels of silver, that if, if you add it up, it actually ends up being 30 pieces of silver. So he buys his wife back, who's now run off as a prostitute. She's run off, she's actually, her life has been sold to a life of sin, and he buys her back seemingly for the price of a slave. He buys her back, so his wife has become literally enslaved to her lusts. She's actually been enslaved to her lust, and as this happens, he has to actually buy her back as a redeemer. He redeems his wife from a life of sin. And she comes out of this lifestyle. And, and he's asking her, listen, you stay faithful to me. I will give my life for you. Please stay faithful to me. And this, this book is an illustration of what was going on both in the house of Judah and in Israel, also referred to as Ephraim. That especially with Ephraim, especially with Israel, Israel's turning away from God time and time again. They were turning their backs on God. And as they were turning from Him, God was turning toward them. He was seeking to redeem them. He was seeking to draw them back. And Hosea's life was an example of who God was to the Israelites. That He was trying to save them from their, their whoredoms, from their prostitution, from this life of immorality. And he was doing everything he could to try to buy them back. But the one thing he could not do, or the one thing he would not do, because it's against his character, is he would not force them to follow him. But he would give them choice. He would give them choice whether they would actually give their lives to him. You know, in chapter, in chapter 5, in the book of Hosea, the, the Israelites continued to turn away, continued to turn away, continued to turn away. And not only do they turn away from God, but they turn to other nations to try to, try to find their own kind of uh, salvation, their own freedom, their own safety, we could say. And look with me in, Hebrew, in Hosea chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 13. Hosea chapter 5, verse 13. It says, when Ephraim saw his sickness, so when Israel saw his sickness, and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. Yet could he not heal you, nor could you cure you of your own wound. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, God says, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face and their affliction. And in their affliction, they will seek me early. 
So the Israelites are running after the Assyrians. They want help from the Assyrians. And the Assyrians couldn't heal them of their wound, the text says. So the Israelites discover that they're sick. They, they realize that they're weak, that they don't have enough strength to take care of themselves. So they run over to the Assyrians. But the Assyrians, instead of, so it's as, as if they're running after another lover. But that lover doesn't bring freedom like they were hoping. They Sure, there may be an, an immediate pleasure because this person seems that they're going to help you out. But then the Assyrians ended up bringing a heavy tax, a heavy burden upon the Israelites. So now their life, and it's so true that when you run after your sin, initially it's exciting. Initially it feels good. You actually enjoy it, right? I mean, that's the only reason we go after sin, because it promises a reward. And, and when you attain that reward, meaning the excitement, the anticipation of being able to acquire that which you're looking after is, is what leads us into sin. And in the, the moment we actually finally have it, for a moment we, might, we may find pleasure, we may find ecstasy, but then afterward there's an emptiness. Afterward there's a burden that comes upon you. And the Assyrians brought a burden. They actually brought a very heavy tax upon the Israelites. So their life became a burden under the weight. They thought they would gain something out of this. But once they had it, now they, now they were forced to pay a big fine, a big, you know, they, they were, that was levied against them. And so here they were under this burden. And God says, okay, I'm going to back away. I'm going to back away and I'm going to let you experience the result of your turning from me. But God's hope in turning away was not turning away so that that they couldn't see him, but rather that they would seek him out. That he would back off until they realized their need for him. Because God wants more than anything, just as Hosea, even even though he recognized this was going to happen. Because you think about what it's like for God. God knew that we would turn away from him. Our Savior, even as He came to earth, recognized that His own followers would turn away from Him. But His heart was there seeking, yearning, desiring that they would give their whole lives, His disciples, that they would give their lives to Him, that we would give our whole life to Him. So as here they are, they're they're separated. God says, I'm going to step back and I'm going to wait for them to come. And notice what it says. Look with me in chapter 6. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. So it says, come, let us, let us return unto the Lord. Let us return, let, let us come back to God. Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn, and he will heal us. He is smitten, and he will bind us up. So the Israelites, or the, actually more Judah, more the house of Judah realized, the Israelites, sadly, of the, you know, you have the 12 tribes, 10 of them, the house of Israel, largely turned away after this and never returned unto God. So the majority of God's people actually left never to come back, but some of them, some of them, mostly the house of Judah, some of the house of Israel, maybe. But, but they actually realized, listen, we have gone through this difficult time. We've been in the time of trial. After their sin had come upon them, after they f- the, felt the gravity, the heaviness of the whole situation, they finally, they finally realized, wow, we've gone through this difficulty. Now we're suffering because of our sin, and we should turn back to God. We should turn back to God. Maybe you've experienced something like that in your own life. 
You felt guilt. You finally, you went to your life of sin. You've been suffering under, maybe it's even addiction to your sin. And then finally you recognize, wow, this, this doesn't bring what I was hoping it would bring into my life. This doesn't bring the joy, the peace that I actually hope. It actually has brought a weight, a guilt, a shame, a sorrow with it, a burden. As the old story Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember if you've ever either read that or listened to it. In Pilgrim's Progress, in the original, you know, kind of like the uh, Elizabethan English there, you know, it says that he had a burden that lied hard upon his back. And he was, he was walking around constantly hoping that, that somehow that burden that he had upon him would be taken off. And so he's walking along the path to the celestial city with this burden that lied hard upon his back. And it wasn't until he made his way to the cross, and when he, when he saw the sight of the cross, somehow, someway, that burden that was heavy upon his shoulders and upon his back, it just tumbled off, and it left him forever. By the sight of the cross, his heart found peace. And the, in God's people here in verse 1 say, Come now, let us return to the Lord, for He has smitten, He has struck us, but He will bind us up. He will heal us. The Assyrians, the things of this world cannot heal me. They can't give me the peace, the joy that I'm looking for. And I know that's the case in my life. As a child, I, I loved God. I was not raised in this faith. I was raised in the Christian Reformed faith. And, uh, but I loved God as a little child. But as I began to grow up, I, I, I didn't live in the worst neighborhood, but I didn't live in the best neighborhood. And um, we had, you know, kids try to come steal from us and so forth. One of the kids, you know, stole from my friend, right? They stole my friend's bike out of the yard. And, and kids would chase us. And, and we began to be fearful when we were young. And, and as I began to fear, I just turned away from God. Not even, not even intentionally, not even, even uh, that I was totally cognizant of it. I just stopped thinking about God. And as I did, I, I, my life went away from God, and, and I, I began to live a life of sin. You know, my, my dad gave me my first cigar, and very rapidly I became addicted to tobacco. Um, my dad, you know, we had a big liquor cabinet in the house. Very rapidly I became, you know, just a heavy, heavy drinker at a young age. I would drink myself to sleep at night. I would do it all alone. It wasn't a social thing. It's just the life that I began to live. And one of the things I discovered is, as you begin to live your life of sin, you begin to, initially you enjoy it, but what I discovered was that I would wake up morning after morning. You see, you could have fun the night before if you even remembered going to bed, but I, what, I, what I remember is that when I would wake up in the morning, in the stillness, in the quietness of my bedroom, I was empty. I was absolutely empty. And I wouldn't even, I mean, at that time, I didn't even think about God. I didn't think, oh, maybe I need to give my life to God. I just didn't even think about it. I was just empty. And so I was looking for something to bring happiness, something. And so I would try the next thing or this relationship or that or whatever. And I was find, trying to find something to bind my wound, right, to heal my soul. But I didn't even think about God. I was running around to the things of the world, and none of them would bring peace. They would only bring a burden. But here the Israelites, here the Israelites or some of the Jews finally say, come, let us return unto the Lord. He will bind us. He will, he will heal us. You know, and then even, um, 
even after giving my life to the Lord. Finally, in, uh, in high school and into college, a friend of mine who was an atheist, he gave his life to God, and after he gave his life to God, that impacted me. Because I knew I was empty. And I thought as I listened to him, as he said, you know, he couldn't do the drugs anymore. He wasn't going to mess around with the girls anymore. As he told me that, I thought, maybe he has found what I'm actually looking for. Maybe he's found what all of us are looking for. And so at that point, I gave my life to God, and and I began to, over time, long story short, over time, I began to read the Word of God day by day by day. I was reading through the Word of God, and that's where the process of change began to take place. But even as you give your life to God, meaning you recognize, okay, this is what I want, but sometimes you don't want to yield every portion of your life to God. Yes or no? Yeah, sometimes there are still things in your life that you don't want to let go. So later on, you know, in college, I became, I became an Adventist, and what a blessing that was. And so I went to, uh, you know, the mission college, and, and after that began to travel around. But there's even still some small things in my life. Like, you know, I was, you know, following somewhat the health message and whatnot, but I was, I was you know, really kind of eating an unhealthy diet to a degree. And as I did, you know, I came down with some health issues, you know, seemed to be gall, gallbladder issues. And, and then later on, the other part, I really couldn't help, but that one I could have uh, by changing my lifestyle. And then after that, I was, we were living in Iceland. And while we were in Iceland, my, my wife, Fadia, we weren't married yet. We had a team of young people working together there. Uh, we all got sick from the water that was there. In the house we were living in, we had something wrong with the water. And so for the first time, I experienced seasonal depression. And I think there was, it was multifactorial. For instance, I mean, the weather there is, uh, don't tell anybody, but it's atrocious in Iceland, you know, much of the year. And uh, so, yes, that's probably, I'm sure that's a factor. But I'm, I come from Michigan originally, and so the weather there is colder in Michigan. And, um, and, you know, it's dark, not quite as dark as Iceland. Iceland is, you know, further north. Uh, but... I lost 30 pounds while I was there because of the stomach trouble that I had. Fadia lost a significant amount of weight. Our friend of us who worked there with us, he, um, he was overweight when he got there. And he lost a bunch of weight, and he looked fantastic by the time we left. So it worked for him. It didn't work very well, you know, for us. But I experienced depression there for the first time. And so for 10 years, off and on, for, for 8 years off and on, I was depressed. And then for 2 years after that, I was totally depressed. Just felt absolutely guilty and ashamed all the time. I was trying to seek the Lord. I was, I was literally, I was confessing my sins. I was trying to pay money back to try to make my life right. I would call people up over and over. Hey, I'm sorry for saying this or for doing that. I was seeking day in and day out to try to make my life right with God. But I felt guilty. I felt, it was just, I was totally depressed. But I went forward. I still continued to, you know, travel the world and share with people uh, the love of God. But yet in my heart, I felt totally just, just absolutely guilty. And I would spend hours, hours seeking God, trying to make my heart right with him. I'd go out in nature and I'd, I'd literally spend hours just praying, seeking God, confessing my sins. And yet, I found no peace in the midst of it. And while I was, while I was in all of that, I remember the very darkest, deepest point. The thought came to me. I thought, what am I going to do? I mean, this is just horrible. At the very darkest, deepest point of the depression, as, as I was going through all the thoughts, all the guilt, all the shame, I, I thought, what if I have to live with this forever? And you know what my next thought was? Then I just accept it. Because where would I go? 
Jesus has the words of life. I knew he was the answer, but I just wasn't experiencing. I mean, I, you know, I, I would study righteousness by faith. I, would, I was seeking God. I was, I was doing anything I could. But I, I realized that now looking back on it, God actually, it, it's interesting, you know, he, uh, the pastor was introducing, you know, mentioned the gut-brain connection. I ended up, it was the gut issue. I mean, this, I'm not trying to go into that in this message, but as I, as I learned something very powerful from the spirit of prophecy, I, I implemented that into my life, and within two weeks, the de- depression lifted. After suffering for years and years and years, um, and Ellen White even talks about that. Sometimes our, our literal mental issues can have a physiological cause. And I look back on those 10 years of suffering, and I'm actually glad that I went through it. I'm actually sincerely glad that I went through those 10 years of just battle and war and, and inner turmoil because it is such a blessing on the other side when you finally find what God is trying to do to help you out. The answer was always right there. It was always right there in those little red books, right? I just didn't know. I didn't know. And they finally said, come, let us return unto the Lord. As, we, as I finally sought the Lord and answers from him, he brought me back. He brought me through all of this. And, and then notice what it says. After they say this, it says in verse 2, in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2 says, And after two days will he revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. It seems to be that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, where Paul tells us that on the third day, Jesus was resurrected according to the scriptures, that he was actually referencing Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, that he would revive us, he would, ri- he would raise us up. So what is happening here? So Notice as they come and they seek the Lord, he would raise them up. That if you come back to the Lord, you may have been living a life of sin. You may have been living separated from him. But if you return unto the Lord, he will raise us up. What does it say? After two days, he will revive us. Now, revive has to do with coming back to life. Maybe you were unconscious, as it were. Or maybe you were dead in your trespasses, in your sins. But he will, he will raise you back up. He will give life back to your soul when you return unto him. You may be living a life of living death, where life is a burden to you. But you come back to God, you seek Him, you seek His face, you seek His word, and as you do, He will raise you up, He will bring you back to life. If you've been unconscious, He will bring your mind back into reality, back to life. This is what He did for His people back then. And all of this is the illustration of His wife leaving Him. So His wife runs off. And he even knows she's going to do it because God told him she was going to do it. But do you think it made it much easier for Hosea because he knew it was going to happen? I don't think so. The pain was just as real as if he had no idea, but yet he did know. And I think about Jesus when he was here on earth. Jesus walks with his disciples for three and a half years. He showers them with his love, with his wisdom, with his care, with everything. He devotes his his entire life to these 12 individuals. And yet, just before his death, he tells them, every single one of you is going to turn away from me. Can you imagine? Every single one of you is going to turn away from me. And they say, no, no, we would never do that. 
No way. I would never turn away from you. And yet every single last one of them turns away from their Savior. And the beautiful thing, what is so, I mean, it's one of those pictures, you know, sometimes the Bible gives you kind of a a lot of room to imagine the story yourself. And sometimes it gets very graphic. It It just says something so clearly. And we have that example of Peter. Peter denies his master three times. Three times he denies that, even with cursing, he denies his Lord. And then we see as Jesus is there, as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, just before he's going to go to the cross, there he is, and Peter walks by and what happens? Peter walks by and his eyes turn to Jesus and Jesus' eyes turn to Peter and their eyes meet one another. That's one of those great, very graphic, uh, you know, depictions in the Gospels where their eyes lock upon each other. And you know that Peter did not see in the eyes of his Lord hatred or anger or condemnation. But Peter sees in the eyes of his Lord compassion, love. Eyes that are longing to gain him back. To have him once again as his faithful follower. And you can know when you have denied your Lord by your life. When you have turned away from the Savior by what you have done with the sin that you promised you would never do it. I will never do that. I'll never do that again. Lord, I've I've done it so many times. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I I wish, you know, I'll never do this again, Lord. And then you've fallen back into it. And you fear that he's looking down from heaven with eyes that are just burning with with anger towards you. And yet Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. How does the Father look down upon you? Even after you've stumbled into sin, the Father and the Son look down upon you with eyes of longing to bring you back. And if you return unto the Lord, he will revive you. He will give you life again, just as we read. And it says in verse 3, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3, Then shall we know if, if we follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. What does it say? It says to us simply, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. And then it says that his coming to us is prepared as the morning. His going forth is prepared as the morning. Just like before, you know, at night you have the darkness and it's prepared every day. The same thing. It It happens every single day, right? The sun comes up as it is. The sun comes up, it brings light. And God's coming is just like that. It is guaranteed just like the sun comes up in the morning, God will seek you out. He will seek to bring from the darkness that may have been in your life, He will come back with light to bring brightness into your life if you will receive it. If you will look for, if, the text says if, If you will seek the Lord, he comes, and he will come even if you don't seek him. That's the thing. It's not like God is saying, listen, if you follow me, then, you know, then I'll come after you. No. Meaning, God is coming up. He is going to come forth. He's going to reveal his light, and will you receive it into your life? Will you open your heart? Will you open your heart to receive the light of the Savior that he is seeking? 
with every bit of his being, with every bit of who he is, he is seeking to save your soul. You may be struggling. You may be struggling with sin. You may be struggling with a guilty conscience. But the sun comes up today. It comes up every day. And God will come forth to you every single day. If you will, take, if you will receive if His light, He can fill your life. He can give you the purity of the Son of God. His righteousness can fill you. You can experience righteousness by faith. That He wants to shed upon you personally. Verse 3 says again, Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, His going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and the former rain unto the earth. Here's one of these texts. You see at least nine times in the Old Testament, actually nine times in Scripture, the Bible talks about the, the latter rain or the former and the latter rain. In the fall time, see the seasons, you know, you have some parts of the world that actually have two growing seasons, You know, here in much of North America, we only really have one. We have kind of the summer, you know, where the spring comes, then we have fall, and you harvest mainly in the fall. You can, you know, harvest, sometimes you have two harvests, one, you know, midsummer, and then one latter latter one in the fall. But in other portions of the world, you actually have two growing seasons. And the former rain would take place in the fall in the ancient Near East. So in the fall, the rain, the original rain would come, and that was the rain that you would go out and you would plant your seed, and you can imagine praying, Father... Please, work. Send the rains, these former rains, to, to actually help the seeds to germinate. And then you had the latter rain that would come at, you know, in the springtime so that it would actually bring the, the fields to harvest. And as they would come back to God, God would rain down upon them just like he would, he would bring them up. Maybe they have no life. Maybe they're in the soil. Maybe they are seemingly dead. And yet he would bring the former rain that he would spring them up so their life could begin to spring forth and, and flourish. But then he would also bring the latter rain where he would bring to fruition that which had been growing. He would bring forth the fruit. And God says, I can do this in your life. I will rain down upon you my Holy Spirit. That if you turn back to me, I can do something in your life. I can do something special. I can transform the old waste places and I can give you life. This is the promise that he had with his people. His goings forth is prepared as the morning. He will not only bring down the light of his righteousness... But it will also rain down his Holy Spirit to give his people life. He will transform us into his character. And you know, the trials we go through, just as Israel. Israel was going through this great burden. As they were going through the trial. And even Judah was going through their great time. Not, not the great time of trouble, but a great time of trouble for them. They're going through these trials. And God is trying to use these difficulties to actually bring them closer to him. This is what he was doing. He wanted to use their trials, their tribulations, and their temptations in, instead of to cause them to turn away from him, that he wanted these things to actually draw his children to him. This is what he wanted to do in their lives. You know, it's come to my attention. Someone shared with me that we're told that about 80% of young Adventists leave the faith after college. 
Imagine if 80% of you here just disappeared, 20% left. For the Israelites, you had the house of Israel, right? Ephraim, as the book of Hosea refers to the house of Israel. So you have Ephraim, you have the 10 tribes of Israel, and then you have the, you know, house of Judah, Benjamin and Judah. So just over 80% left. Just over 80% left. Most of them never to come back to God. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. And it wasn't necessary. Because God was actually through his prophet Hosea. Hosea of the latter prophets were told that he was the longest, he had the longest ministry of any of the latter prophets. We're not talking about, you know, patriarchal times and we're not talking about, you know, Enoch and so forth. But, but of, of, the, of the prophets who had more of a normal lifespan like maybe we do, we're told that, that Hosea ministered to the house of Israel and Judah for somewhere between 70 to 90 years. Can you imagine? That, that he is going forth, he's preaching, he's sharing with them, telling them to turn from their sins. Year after year after year, king after king after king comes and goes. King, you know, comes to the throne and he dies. Another king rises, he's, he's on the throne. Then he dies, another king comes to the throne. He rises and he dies over and over again, over 90 years potentially. Hosea is ministering, trying to save the souls of these individuals who are getting deeper and deeper into sin, deeper and deeper into their idols. And they're going after idol after idol. They're committing sexual fornication. And as this is happening, this is continuing in their lives. And he's trying to draw them closer to God. And his life, I think his life was to be a sickening illustration. That the Israelites would think, why would God tell that guy to marry a prostitute? That's ridiculous. And, and it would just cause disgust in people. And then the Holy Spirit would say, you are the man. Just as David was angry with the illustration of the sheep that was taken away from the poor man. And David said the man should be killed for doing this. And what did the prophet say? You are the man. That is the Israelites would be sickened by, by this, this man who is supposed to live a holy life. Marrying a woman who runs after other lovers. Sells herself into sexual slavery. And... I think it was made to make people sick to their stomachs so that they would realize, what are we doing? What are we doing? See, that illustration is so ugly that none of us like it. Yes or no? I mean, we don't like it. And yet God was saying, this is the pain, the sorrowing, the suffering that I go through day after day after day. Because I come up just as the sun comes forth and shines its righteousness. Each day my mercies are renewed in my people. And yet they turn from me and they turn from me. I am seeking to be their redeemer. To buy them back from slavery. I want to buy you back from slavery, he says. If you will turn. Yet 80% of them turned away. But here's the thing. I don't believe 80%, just over 80% had to leave God. I don't believe that for a second. They could have come back. And we too, we don't have to have 80% of you turn away. It's not necessary. Because God loves you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness has he drawn you, Jeremiah says. God cares with you. He's not looking down with hatred and saying, Listen, I know what you've struggled with. I know the pornography that you were looking at. 
I know the, the lust that you struggle with. I know the anger problem that you have. I know your lust after the world that you care more about money than you care about me, God says, or, or whatever you struggle with. The attention of people on, you know, Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is that the, the idols that you have, I have no idea what they are. Regardless of the fact that you have them, God doesn't look down with eyes of burning anger toward you. He looks down with eyes of compassion on you as his child and he's trying to draw you out of that life to save your soul. He loves you with an everlasting love. If, the text says in verse 3, if we return to him. If. And the good news is none of you have to be lost. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish. Meaning, he doesn't want you to be lost. He wants you to be saved. You are part of the any. He wants every single one of you. So 80% of you don't have to fall away. 100% of you can be saved. Isn't that good news? Meaning God has chosen you from the foundations of the world because he wants you to be saved. And if you will give your life to him, if you will give your life, he will save you. He's looking down with love upon you, though though you may feel guilty. You know, even in the midst of it, even when I couldn't feel that God loved me, even though I felt guilty and ashamed, I yet somehow trusted, even, even in the shame of it all, that his word must be true. Your feelings are not what determines your salvation. Did you know that? You know how we know that? Jesus felt that he could never be saved. Yes or no? Was he saved in the end? Yes. Your feelings do not determine your salvation. Trust in God and his word even when you can't feel it. And you know that this will be part of the trial at the end of time in the time of trouble? That we will feel that we have, we have sinned against God. We will feel that we have, and we have in our lives. But we will feel as if we cannot be saved. And yet God's faithful, his 144,000 at the end of time, they will be saved. Even though, even though they're searching their hearts, they're, and we do need to search our hearts. We need to ask God for forgiveness. Yes, we need to repent and confess and turn away. But yet, even though we feel guilty, we feel ashamed, this will be the trial of the last days. Don't let go of your hold on God. He still loves you even when you cannot feel it. He will revive us if we hold on. He will revive us. But many of us have turned away, but today is the day to come back. I read a story about the great hymn writer Robert Robinson. He was walking down the city streets in London there on a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. And if you've been to London or England in general, you know that a beautiful, sunny day doesn't come very often. 
but he was walking along the beautiful streets of London at the time with the sun shining, and it was, you know, everyone was going to church, and, but he wasn't going. He had not gone to church. He had actually fallen away from God, and, and he had turned from him, and he was, he was in emptiness, and he was in shame, and he was in guilt, and all of these thoughts, you know, were going through his mind during those days and weeks and months as he had turned away from God. And as he was walking through the city streets, he heard the clippity-clop, clippity-clop of, the horse, of a horse-drawn carriage that came up behind him. And as he turned and looked, the, the driver stopped, and behind him was sitting a young lady. And she said, Sir, I would be happy for you to ride with me if you would like. And so he hopped up in the carriage with her, and she said, Are you, <clears throat> are you going to church? And he said... He hadn't been there for quite some time. He said he was thinking to say no, but then just her asking made him think, I should go. And he said, yes, I'm going to church. And they exchanged their names. And he said, my name is Robert Robinson. And she said, what a coincidence. She said, I was just reading. I was just reading a poem by by a man by the name of Robert Robinson. Could, Could it be? And he said, yes. I am the writer. And she pulled out, she had with her, she had a little book with these poems inside of it. And as she pulled out the poems there, she said, did you write this song? And he looked down and he read the words that he himself had penned. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His heart was stirred with emotion as he had fallen away from God. And here he was reading these words. And then his, his eyes dropped lower onto the page as he read the final verse where it said, Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Tears were streaming down his face. And he said to the young lady, I have been living these words right now. And she looked to him and she said, but you also wrote down, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Robert Robinson gave his life to Jesus that day. Because of a poem he had written that later on was written to music and now to this day, this is one of my favorite hymns. God knows your heart is prone to wander. He knows what you feel. Jesus became a human being, experienced every emotion, every, everything that you have to go through. He experienced it there on planet earth. He says, I know you're prone to wander. He says, but I will seal your heart for the courts above, if you will come unto me. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads just now. With every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Maybe you've you've been struggling with a sin. Maybe you've been struggling with a temptation. Maybe you've been struggling with the desire to run after the ways of the world. And you realize that maybe Gomer's story is a bit of your story. Maybe you say, Chad, I'm not a prostitute. I haven't run around and slept around. Or maybe you have. 
But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a sin, a little white lie. Maybe it's a little, you know, uh, nobody knew what you were looking at on your phone or your computer or what have you. Nobody knows what you've been doing in the secret recesses of your own life or in your own heart. But God knows. And he doesn't look with hatred. He looks to you with love. And maybe there's someone here this morning who says, Jesus, I want to, I want to come back to you. I want to receive your Holy Spirit. I want that latter rain experience. I need the former and the latter rain to revive my soul, to give life to me. I want your Holy Spirit to rain down, to give me victory. Help me to become one of your people. Father, I don't want to be lost. I want you to save my soul. Is there someone here this morning who says, there's something in my life I want to give to Jesus. I've been struggling. And I want to, I want to return unto my Lord that he may revive me. If that is you, you feel the Holy Spirit impressing your heart, would you simply raise your hand while you are, where you are just now? Would you raise your hand where you are? Let me put your hands down. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have the same love in your heart for us that your son does. We're so thankful that you sent him to us so we could have a better conception of who you are, Father. We thank you that you love us. You know that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's our hearts, Lord. Take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.